one of the realities of being in relationships with humans is that sometimes it's awesome and it's joy-filled and it's fun and we can't hardly wait to be around that person we care about and love so much. The flip side of that is sometimes it's extremely painful. No one can wound you worse than a human. Your dog might bite you, but it, the, the wound of a friend always hurts more. The pain that we experience in relationships, the rejection, the abandonment, the harsh words, sometimes those are the hardest things for us to deal with and to process and to get through. Years ago, uh, my dad uh, attended our church uh, for a while in Portland. And it's kind of weird because my dad, all my life, I grew up <laughs> where my dad was the preacher and I sat on the front row. And uh, now it's reversed now and he's sitting in the uh, front row of the church I'm pastoring. And for the most part, he was, he was pretty encouraging. It was, it was okay having my dad there. He uh, didn't like a lot of things we did in our church. He didn't like our music. Uh, my dad's attitude was drums are of the devil. And uh, he seriously believed that. <laughs> So you can imagine, I love drums. Um, so anyhow, it's, it, was, it was a challenge at times. But he was pretty, pretty encouraging by and large. But one day I went down. He lived in a high-rise apartment complex. If you know Portland, it was right on the river, beautiful place. And I went down to visit him probably once a week or so, and I was down there having lunch with him. And in the course of my conversation with my dad, uh, I referred to my stepdad. Now, my parents got divorced when I was in my early 20s. And that's a whole other story, but my mom remarried a really great guy named Frank, and Frank had been my stepdad for quite some time prior to this, and I referred to Frank as dad while talking to my dad. To say that pushed a button would be an understatement, because he was not happy with me at all. Now, some of you are stepdads, some of you are dads, and your kids have stepdads, and I understand some of the emotion behind that. But the reality is, you know, I, I tried to explain to him, I said, dad... I call my father-in-law Al, who's been my father-in-law for a long time. I have never called him Al. I call him Dad. And I said, this man, Frank, is married to my mother, and he's, you know, another guy in my life. And as a point of respect, I call him Dad. Ever tried to explain something to somebody? The more you explain it, the worse things get. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The more I talked, the madder he got, and the more upset he got. And I will never forget one of the most painful moments in my life with my father was he got up, he'd had multiple back surgeries, he couldn't stand straight, but he kind of hobbled and stomped the door, opened the door, pointed his finger, says, get out of my house and never call me dad or father again. I was devastated. I, I, I couldn't believe this was over something that silly in some ways. Well, I got to my car in the parking garage, and you guys know that sometimes I'm given to uh, cry a little bit. And I sat in my car and I wept. I just, I wept. In fact, a lady came to her car and she looked at me and she goes, you know, mouth, are you okay? And I'm finally me alone. And, and I couldn't drive. I was so overcome with grief and, and hurt that I spent 10, 15 minutes in the car crying that day. It's one of the most hurtful, devastating things that my dad ever said to me. Now, uh, we worked through it and uh, eventually he did accept me back into his life. But I never made the mistake of calling Frank dad in my dad's presence again. He never apologized. He didn't want to hear it, didn't want to go there. But um, I learned some things. Here's my point of that. At some level, at some point in your life, every one of you has been abandoned, forsaken, rejected, abused, wounded uh, by someone in your life. Someone that you loved, someone that you cared about, someone that maybe you, you highly respected. Somebody that you thought was great and awesome suddenly became not so great. In fact, they went from awesome to awful in a pretty quick hurry. We've all experienced that kind of pain in relationships. Today we're starting 
a new series called When Everything Falls Apart. And today we're going to talk about what do you do when you are abandoned, when you've been rejected. And some of you, I know, I know some of your stories. Some of you have been abandoned by a spouse, and it was the most painful thing you've ever been through in your life. Some of you have been rejected by a parent, like I was, or rejected by a child. I mean, you brought this kid into the world you fed him or her, you gave them everything, you did the best you could, and at some point they basically rejected you and walked away and, and said spiteful, horrible things. You've, you've been there, you know. And the wounds and, are deep and the anguish really is awful. Some of you have been, you've been wounded by friends, people that you would have taken a bullet for, and now they don't want to have anything to do with you. And as a father and a grandfather, I wish I could promise my children that they would never experience the pain and anguish of relational failure. I wish I could promise that to my kids. As a pastor, I sincerely wish I could promise you a pain-free life. Just love Jesus and you'll never have any problems. Would that be awesome if I could promise you that and it were true? But one of the things that I've come to understand in my years is that we humans are pretty inclined to wounding one another. Unfortunately, we do this all too often and all too well. And so the sad fact of the matter is, it's not will you be hurt by someone in your life, because that's, that's going to happen. It has happened, and it will happen again. The question is, how can you survive the sting of rejection when it does happen? What do you do when you face that pain, that anguish in a relationship? I want to give you this morning four keys to surviving rejection. And I don't really like calling things keys, because it kind of sounds like, just do these four things, and everything will be great. And I, you know, I, I am not that guy, but I, I want you to think of keys in terms of something that unlocks a door. And I believe that these four keys will unlock some of the, the doors, some of the, the doors between you and others, some of the doors that have kept you in bondage. And so I want to talk about four keys to surviving rejection this morning. And here's the very first one, number one in your outline. Work through your frustrations with God. Work through your frustration and, dare I say, your anger with God. Hundreds of times, I couldn't tell you how many times, I've talked to people who are not only hurt by a human, but they are very disappointed by God. We often ask, I've asked it, and many of you have, God, where where were you when I was going through this pain? Why didn't you do something? How could you let something this horrible happen to me? Not too long ago, in a church I spoke at, I was a guest speaker there, and a woman came up to me afterwards, and I I would guess that she was probably maybe in her 40s, early 40s somewhere, uh, she was an attractive woman, but you could tell that she had lived a very hard life, that she had really gone through a lot, and she looked much older than she probably was because of all the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that had been in her life. And she said, I, can I tell you a little bit of my story? And I said, sure. And she gave me the Reader's Digest version of her life in about two minutes. And, and here were the, the highlights, or I should say the lowlights of her life. At, as a child, she was sexually abused by an uncle. At 12 years old, her dad left the family, and she never saw her father again, ever. Dad left and was gone. She'd been through not just one, but two, as she put them, ugly divorces that were extremely painful and hurtful for her. And she looked at me and says, I don't understand how God could let this happen to me. Where was God in the midst of all my pain? And I could see the, the, the angst, the agony in her soul. And I told her what I want to tell you today, and I want you to listen carefully. I don't have any pat or simple answers to all the why questions we go through. You know, you've heard me say it before, I am not the guy that's going to slap a happy Jesus sticker on everything we go through. 
I'm not the guy that's just gonna say, oh, just suck it up, buttercup, you'll be fine, just go, get, keep going. I, I, sometimes, you know, we hurt, and I understand that. I wanna mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. I told her I don't have any simple, simple or pat answers for, for your struggles, but here's what I do know, and here's what I told her, and I want you to listen carefully. I told her to begin with, we all live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, and we cannot blame God for that fact. Mankind chose to reject God. We chose to go our own way. We chose to sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of what God meant for us, of what he intended. And we have chosen, and because of our sin, we have messed this world up. We can't blame God for that. The second thing I told her is that we live in a world where we have an enemy, his name is Satan, and his number one goal is to take us out. He hates you, and he wants to destroy your relationship with God. He wants to destroy your relationship with people. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour you and bring death into your life. And we have got to live with the reality that we live in a broken world where there's an enemy who's trying to take us out, and the battle rages all around us. I also told her that Jesus warned us that we would have trouble in this world. We probably shouldn't be surprised when it comes because Jesus told us that we would, in fact, have trouble. He also said our trouble wouldn't be the end of the story, though. John 16, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said, I've told you these things. Now, John 14, 15, 16, 17, really the last words of Jesus prior to his crucifixion. And he's trying to prepare them, he's warning them, he's encouraging them. And he says, I've told you these things so that, listen, in me you may have peace. And then he made this statement that we cannot deny. He said, in this world we will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, the battle rages all around us on planet earth. And life is not always going to be simple or easy. But the good news is, that's not the end of the story. Jesus said, I've overcome, and in the end, you're going to win. Here's the other thing I told that woman, and it's something that was a real surprise to her, and it is from time to time when I talk to people and I tell them the same thing. I told her that God can handle your anger. I said, take your frustration and your pain to God and tell him how you feel. And she started shaking her head, oh, I could never do that because that would just be too disrespectful. I can't talk to God. I mean, you don't want to know the words I would use if I talked to God. And, and I said, listen, he already knows how you feel. Just get real with him. Humble yourself. Go and, comp- and confess. Pour out your heart to God. In fact, I told her, don't run from God, but run to him. See, part of our struggle is when we get hurt. We get wounded. Not only do we withdraw from people, but often we withdraw from God. And and when we need to run to him, what we do is we run from him. One of the things I love about the Psalms of David is how honest he was with God. It might be uh, good for you, some of you, to read through the Psalms in the near future. But one of my favorites is is reading David's anguish and how he dealt with it. But Psalm 22 Here's what David said. He said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Now, you might recognize those words because Jesus said these very same words. He quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, from the cross. Jesus yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that David cried out. Verse 2, David said, every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief, David took his complaint, his angst, and his anguish, and his sorrow to God. You know, David was a man in the Scriptures called a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king, hands down, that ever ruled over Israel, one of the greatest kings to ever live. 
But David still had moments of despair and struggle, great moments, where his own son tried to take him out, moments of failure where he sinned with Bathsheba. David struggled with a whole lot of life and the hardship of life. But what I love about David is that he did not get stuck there. He didn't stay there. Verse 3 in Psalm 22 says, Yet, and that's a very important word, Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. David didn't stay stuck in the, Oh my God, where are you? But he, he said, Yet God, I am going to put my hope in your goodness and your holiness and your power in your life. David did precisely what we must do. We need to take our pain to God and know that our cries to him never fall on deaf ears. Never. In another time when David was hiding for his life, literally hiding for his life in a cave from an evil king named Saul who was trying to kill him, not a good place to be. David wrote these words, words from Psalm 142, verse 1 and 2. It said, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out my, before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. David says, I'm not in a good place, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run to God. I'm going to pour out my complaint, my struggles, my, my, my troubles before him. Somehow David discovered that one of the best things we can do is go to God with our complaints and, tr- and, and struggles. Go to him. It's better to go to God in our anger than to run from him in our rage. It's better to go to God when we're frustrated and angry, even if we're angry at him, than it is to run from him in our rage. Pastor, uh, excuse me, pastor and author Max Licato once put it this way. I love this statement. He said, we avoid pain and seek peace, but God uses pain to bring peace. We avoid pain and seek peace, but God uses pain to bring peace. In other words, what's he saying? He said, peace is not found in the absence of pain. Peace is found in the presence of God. It's found in and through him. Part of what our pain does for us, it should do this for us, is draw us to him. Drive us to him. To say, oh God, oh God, I need you. As hard as it is sometimes, as perplexing as life is, we need to go to the Father and to work through our anger and frustration, to go to him, not run from him. Here's the second key to surviving rejection. Number two, work through your anger and disappointment toward the offender. Work through your anger, your frustration, and disappointment toward the offender. You know, the Bible, in fact, challenges us to handle our anger and our frustration with people in a way that is radically different than our natural tendency. You know, there's the fight or flight response or reaction most of us have. Some, we get in trouble, go through something difficult, we boop. We, fit, we bail, we, 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 it's the flight. Some of us are fighters, and I will admit to you, that's who I am. Say something mean about me, and I'm gonna bite your head off. Get in my face, and I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be all over you. Yell at me, I'm gonna scream at you. Bite me, I'm gonna bite you back worse. Abuse me, and I'm gonna hurt you. I'm gonna put the hurt on you bad. That's my tendency. My natural tendency is when I'm wounded, to wound back. Kick me and watch out. I'm gonna kick the dog, and then I'm gonna kick you. I want to react to situations all too often, but the Bible challenges us to not react, but instead to respond. I'm going to punch through some verses. They're listed in your outline. Some of you are going to want to go through them again on your own this week. But let me just punch through some things that define for us the way we ought to be, the response we need to give rather than the reaction that all too often comes from us. Proverbs 15.1. Solomon says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word only makes things worse. Solomon says, rather than react, respond. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now notice here, it doesn't say that anger is a sin. The Bible says there are times when God gets angry. So being angry is not a sin. What makes it a sin, where it crosses into sin, is in, when we allow it to control us and we react rather than respond. When we do things that are hurtful and spiteful and out of our anger. David says, excuse me, Paul says in Ephesians, don't go there. Don't do that because you provide a platform. Then You provide a, a foothold for the enemy to get into your heart, into your mind, and you don't want that to happen. And what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 12, forgive us for the ways we have wronged you. It's a prayer he's modeling. Just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. Forgive as you've been forgiven. In one of his sermons, Jesus taught in Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, how many of you just find that really the natural thing to do? Yeah, none of us do. I mean, we might grow to that. I hope we do that. But Jesus said, here's the way it ought to be for those who follow me. If you're a Christ follower, this is the pattern we're to follow. Jesus said, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Not only are we to forgive those who wound us and hurt us, but we're to go even further and we're to bless them. And that means to speak well of them and to, in fact, do good for them. The Apostle Paul wrote the very same thing in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Now, the context here, Paul's talking about persecution for our faith in Christ. I, I know the, the context here. But the principle still applies. The truth of the Scriptures is don't, it's not evil for evil. It's not eye for eye. In fact, when we're cursed, we're to bless and, in fact, pray for those who hurt us. Again, Paul in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, Anger, shouting, and slander, along with every other evil. Like, if I miss anything, Paul says, let me just throw this catchphrase in. Along with everything evil. In verse 32, man, this just rocks my world. Be kind, he says, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Be kind, compassionate, forgiving. Forgive just as you've been forgiven. I think some of us need to have that verse tattooed someplace on our bodies, maybe on our forearm. Where we're reminded on a regular basis that this is the pattern we're to follow. You know, a few days after my dad disowned me, uh, I went from being really hurt to being really mad. Have you noticed that's the pattern sometimes? That first we're hurt, how oh, could they say that about me? Why could they, I can't believe it happened, and that's not fair, it's not good, I feel so bad. And the more we start to think about it and stew on it, we start thinking, who does that guy think he is? I can't believe he treated me. I'm his son. You can't say that to your son. That, and, and it's not fair. And, and the more I thought about it, the more rattled and upset and mad I got. So I went from hurt, crying in my car in the parking lot for 15 minutes like a baby, to being really, really ticked. and like, fine, I'm done with you too. Don't ever call me son. Neener, neener. <laughs> I know nobody uses the word neener anymore, but I, it's all right. I was so mad. But have you ever felt like God has set you up? I read the scriptures every day. And I, that, that morning, as I'm, I'm venting about my dad and I'm mad, I, I, the passage that I happened to read that day in the scriptures was Ephesians chapter 4. Not a good passage to read when you're mad at somebody. 
Because it doesn't give you a whole lot of latitude, a lot of leeway here. And I read this, and I, oh, man, be kind, compassionate, forgiving, blah, blah, blah. God, I don't want to do this. And the, and the truth is, I'm thinking, I don't feel like forgiving my dad. I don't want to be a hypocrite. You know, so we use that as an excuse sometimes. I'm just going to be really ugly and mean because I don't want to be hypocritical. I don't feel like forgiving God. It's not right. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to do that. And in that moment, I realized something. And it just had a flash to Jesus on the cross where Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. It's found in Luke 23, 34. Here I am saying it's not fair. God, it's not, it's, I, I don't feel like doing this. And then I just, I just saw this picture of Jesus, hands pierced, feet pierced, beaten to beyond recognition. We, we sometimes, we see, we carry the cross on our neck or we see pictures and it doesn't do it justice for the agony and the pain that Jesus experienced. Every breath, a struggle, trying to survive. And then from the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I didn't feel like forgiving my dad. But I realized in that moment that I had a choice, and I made that choice. And by the way, nothing changed in my father. Not one thing. Eventually, you know, he let me back into his house, and we were father-son again. But nothing changed in him. But you know what? Everything changed in me. Everything changed in me. And I'm pretty sure from the cross, Jesus didn't feel any warm fuzzy, so feelings are not really the issue. But Jesus, rather than react to something that was terrible and unjust, he chose to forgive. I know it's not easy. Some of you sitting here right now, you should see your faces. Some of you are thinking, what did he say? I know it's not easy. I know that everything in us screams it's not fair. They don't deserve to be forgiven. But here's what I've learned. We can learn to practice the grace of forgiveness as we experience and remember the forgiveness that we have from God. You see, forgiveness doesn't happen out of a vacuum, not true, lasting forgiveness. And one of the things, if you're here today, you're not yet a Christ follower. I'm going to end the service. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision to begin your life as a Christ follower because you need to experience that grace and forgiveness because it's out of that forgiveness that we are then able, empowered to go way beyond us. We forgive as we have been forgiven. And by the way, the reality is until we do we think that we're not going to let them off the hook and that we're, we're no way I'm going to let them off the hook. Well, we're the ones on the hook and we're not going to experience the freedom we need until we let it go. Forgive. Here's the third thing. Number three, be honest enough to accept your part in the problem. This one's not easy either. Be honest enough to accept your part, your stuff, your thing, your part in the problem. You know, rarely is it 100% the other person's fault. Now, it might be 99% their fault and only 1% your fault. Might be 99.9999% their fault and only 0.001% your fault. It's entirely possible that they are way more responsible than you are. But here's the deal. It's still important for us to own our part. And I want to encourage you to not hide your sin behind your wounds. Let me say it again. Do not hide your sin behind your wounds. You know, this might shock you. I say that facetiously. But occasionally people leave East Point and they're not happy with me. They uh, leave very unhappy and sometimes on their way out the door, they say some pretty mean, hurtful things or I get scathing emails. And I'm human. It doesn't feel real good. It hurts. 
Now, there's a few things you need to know, and this is important, especially if you're a guest or you're new. Um, I gave up trying to keep everybody happy a long time ago. Uh, why? Because it's impossible. A little side note, if you're trying to keep everybody happy in your life, how's that working out for you? I mean, it's a miserable way to try to live, trying to keep everybody happy all the time about everything. I mean, you just, it's impossible. And being the senior pastor of a church, it's impossible. I get people, hey, the music's too loud. Oh, it's not loud enough. Oh, it's too hot. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, I don't like you in jeans. Oh, I love that you're in jeans. I mean, I get it. And if I tried to keep everybody happy all the time, it would drive me Looney Tunes. So a long time ago, I made a decision, and this is a little insight I want you to put into practice. I'm going to worry about one person. His name is Jesus. I'm going to try to live for an audience of one. You have to. Now, that doesn't mean I ignore godly, constructive criticism. Not at all. But I'm going to live for an audience of one and do my best to please him because there's no way I'm going to keep everybody happy. Here's another thing I've learned. Everything we do around here is a bridge to some and a barrier to others. Some people come in and they see me and Gene sitting down in a chair and they go, cool. Others come in and go, where's the robe? This guy doesn't wear a collar. What's up with that? Everything we do. I, believe me, I, better than you understand, I get this. Everything we do is a bridge to some and a barrier to others. But when someone comes and they are pretty upset or they leave disgusted with me, here's something I've learned to do. I've learned to pause in the midst of my pain and ask three very important questions. These are not in your outline, but you might want to write these down today. Because I want to suggest that when you are confronted or hurt or when something hard happens and somebody rips you to shreds, maybe these are three questions that might be good for you to ask as well. Here's the first one. What could I have done better? In the midst of my pain, I've just hit the pause button and I've asked a simple question. Okay, God, what could I have done better? Second question, where might I have failed? Guess what? I'm not perfect. And maybe it's 0.1%, but where have I blown it? Where have I failed? And the third question is, what can I learn from this, God? <laughs> Sometimes people say to me, I don't feel like God ever answers my prayers. And I smile. I say, well, here's a prayer I guarantee that God will answer for you. Ask him where you need to grow. Ask him where you need to learn, uh, what you need to figure out in your life that, that's not exactly the way. I mean, I promise you that is a question, a prayer that God will always ask or answer. God, what do I need to learn? Where do I need to grow? And I ask that question when I'm dealing with conflict or in struggle. And honestly, that pause to reflect almost always teaches me something. You see, one of our core values around here at East Point is authenticity. We use our word reach. R is for relationship, E is for excellence, A is for authenticity or being authentic. And it's one of our core values. And what that means to me is we value being real and even a little raw sometimes. In fact, you need to know I'm comfortable with things being a little messy. Why? Because that's the human condition. I've never met the perfect person. I'm not the perfect person. I've never been a part of the perfect church. This is not the perfect church. So we better just get a little comfortable with messy. It's all right. Again, that doesn't mean we ignore things or we don't grow through things. Of course we want to grow and get better. Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes things just don't always go the way they should go. And when I cross the line, when I do something or say something, when a, the church crosses the line or we do something or say something that we shouldn't have done, the best thing for us to do is to grow through that, not just go through it, and to own our part, for me to own my part. Now let me be clear. I'm not suggesting 
that you get into some introspective navel-gazing, that you, you know, you're constantly doing this evaluation thing that makes you insecure and nervous and worried and terrified and fearful and blown up all the time. Not at all. But there is a biblical admonition in the Scriptures to examine ourselves. David, again, the Psalms, said in Psalm 139, 23, said to God, it's a prayer, great prayer. Examine me, God. Look at my heart. Put me to test. Know my anxious thoughts. God, I want to be an open book to you. Take a look. And David did a heart check. In the context of taking communion, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, everyone, that would include you, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and take of the cup. Now, yes, again, Paul is dealing with the context of communion here. And the church that he wrote this to had a lot of problems, a lot of messed up people. They were, they were dishonoring the Lord and just ignoring their sin and, and abusing the Lord's table. And Paul says, don't go there. Not good idea. Pause. Do a timeout. Examine yourself before you do that. Remember. And it doesn't mean you're not looking for some disqualifier. Well, I got sin in my life. I shouldn't take communion. Not at all. What Paul is saying is, pause, remember you are broken, deal with the sin, confess it, repent of it, and then take communion in celebration of what God has done, his goodness toward us, his mercy toward us. But again, even though it's in the context of communion, the truth is, the Bible says, examine yourself. Self-examination leads to spiritual growth, and it's always wise. Let me say it again. Self-examination always leads to spiritual growth, and it's good. It's a smart thing when it's done in the context of our relationship with God. And if by chance you might think, well, I really don't need to do that because I don't have a lot wrong with me. Well, let me read you one last verse on this point. First John, uh, 1 John verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John says, come on, just own it. We all have sin. And so let me say it again. Even when you're mostly right, Take responsibility for where you might have gotten it even a little wrong and own your stuff. Here's the fourth, final, brief, and yet the most important key to surviving rejection. Number four, hold on to the one who will never forsake or abandon you. Hold on to the one, to Jesus, because he will never forsake or abandon you. Life is tough, and I often have more questions than answers, and I know many of you have been there. Maybe you're there right now. You don't get it. You don't understand. And life is really hard sometimes. But here's what I've learned, and here's what I want you to walk away with today. Who we hold determines how we survive. Who we hold on to determines how we survive. And the most important key to surviving rejection is to know and to understand that there is one who has never and will never forsake you. See, I, this is the most important thing because there are times when you will be deeply wounded by humans, by people, by, by relationships in your life, these kinds of relationships. But the promise of the word is God will never leave us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, you can be sure that I am always with you to the very end. I'm always with you. Hebrews 13, 5 says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The promise of the word of God is that he's never going to leave us. I know a Christian woman, her name's Helen, and she uh, went to be with the Lord a long time ago. But when I knew Helen, she was in her 90s, and she was one of the most amazing women that I've ever known in my life, next to my wife, an amazing woman. Helen um, 
was kind and, and she, was, she was beautiful. Now, when I say beautiful, I've never met a 90-year-old that I thought was stunningly physically beautiful. And, and she wasn't. But everything that really mattered inside this woman was gorgeous. A woman of great beauty. And she was so amazing. And, and I, I got to know her story. And one of the things that surprised me as I learned more about her life was how many times in her life she'd been deeply wounded and hurt. Now, if you've ever known somebody that's old and grumpy or old and bitter, you know that those are people you don't want to hang out with. They are miserable and just being around them makes you miserable. And they're bitter because they've been through hard things. You know, you live 90 years on planet Earth. You've probably been through some hard things. And sometimes you're around people like that and you just go, whoa. I don't want to be anywhere near that person because all they do is drag me down and make my life miserable and, and complain and gripe and moan and groan. And it's like, oh, man. But Helen was not that way at all. In fact, the exact opposite. You were attracted and drawn to this woman. But again, what amazed me was when I began to hear some of the things she'd been through. In her early 20s, she had, uh, was divorced. Her husband, her first husband, had left her. Now, a little side note here, a little insight. Back in the late 30s, early 40s when this happened, divorce was not common at all, not even close. Now, I know it's fairly common in our culture today, and, and so we don't re- typically treat people that are divorced as pariahs. But back then, it was extremely, especially in the church, extremely uncommon and, and, and not accepted at all. And so here her husband leaves her. She didn't do anything wrong. Her husband bails, leaves her, and here's the, the part that just broke my heart. About half her family absolutely rejected her. She, they, you know, basically, you've got the scarlet D on you, and we don't want to have anything to do with you. You're divorced, and we don't want to talk to you. They rejected her. And here's the part that really, in fact, it made me mad. The church that she grew up in, the church where she gave her life to Jesus, the church where she had invested and served and given so much, that church excommunicated her and told her, you're no longer welcome to be a part of our church because she was divorced. Now, today, we think, well, that would be kind of unusual. At least I hope so. But that, back then, it wasn't. And, I, and, and then she told me some other things. I don't have time to unpack them for you. But I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. How could this woman be as kind and gentle and w- wonderful and amazing that, 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 that she is? How could she be like that? And I asked her, I said, Helen, i got to ask you, how did you survive all that? How, how, are you, how did you become the woman that you are? And she smiled. And without even missing a beat, she grabbed an old Bible. The Bible was probably 100 years old. But she grabbed an old Bible sitting on the coffee table next to her. And she turned to Psalm 18.2, one of my most favorite verses in all the Psalms. And she read this. She said, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my Savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. And then she put her Bible down in her lap. She gave me this big smile. She said, Kurt, God has always been my rock. He's always been my refuge. And I've learned to never let my past control my present or my future. Wow. I was stunned. Kurt, God has always. And I can't, guys, I just told you one little piece of some of the hardship she's been through. She said, Kurt, God has always been my refuge, my protector, my rock. And I have learned to never let my past control my present or my future. Helen was someone focused on a God that was always with her and someone way above her problems and someone that she could put her hope in. If you've been rejected, if you've been wounded, if you've been hurt, and many of us have, 
what I want to encourage you to do today is to run to the one who's always there for you and who always will be. Bye, heads. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you that you are a God who will never leave us or forsake us, that we can count on you, that we can put our hope and trust in you no matter what we face. And I know, Lord, there's some sitting in this room or listening that they have been deeply wounded by people. And perhaps, Lord, they have felt like they couldn't go to you or that they feel like they've, they've, their anger has, has driven them away from you. I pray today, God, that they would run to you and that they would come to the one who is there waiting to be their strong tower, their protector, and their refuge and their strength. Jesus, I pray that we would see you right now as the one who was forsaken and abused by men. And yet, Lord, you forgave as as you chose to forgive. Help us to choose to forgive today as well. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet started your walk as a Christ follower. And it begins with a choice you make in your heart. You believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he, he did for you, that he died for your sins. You embrace the forgiveness, the gift of grace that God has for you. But I'm going to pray this very simple prayer. And again, what's more important, what's, what's in your heart. But if, if my prayer right now, if these words are your words and you're ready, you know you want to be in relationship with the Father. You want to be forgiven. You want to know that grace. Then just make this prayer yours right now. Father, forgive me. I come to you rather than run from you. And I've, I've been running for a long time. Now I run to you. And I'm surrendering my life to you right now. Everything. It's yours. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my heart, my life, to change me from the inside out. I ask you, God, to make me the son or daughter that I know you want me to be and that I cannot be without you. And right here, right now, let me know the joy of coming into relationship with you forever. Now, if that's you in your heart, just say, yep, God, that's me. The Bible says the moment you say yes to him, you begin that journey as a Christ follower, as a disciple of Jesus. Lord, for those making that decision now, show them what it means. Show them what you're going to do. Show them that they're not in this journey alone, that that not all the answers will come on this side of, of eternity, but that you will be there with them every step along the way. And show them, Jesus, that you are, in fact, their God, their protector, their life giver, and their healer and their forgiver right now. That you're the one that they can count on forever. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something. We're going to do something a little different this morning to finish this up. I'm asking you to remain seated. Rather than sing a closing song, I've asked the band to do a special song. It's called When Everything Falls Apart. Some of you maybe have heard it, but it's a great song. And I want you to listen to these words. Let this encourage you. Ushers are going to take the offering. We'll give as we listen to this. But listen to these words. Let the power of them reach into your soul, and I'll come back and wrap it up. Let's stand together. The question I want you to uh, answer today, and only you can answer it in your heart, is when everything falls apart in your life, who are you going to turn to? You're going to run to him or run from him? I hope you have an amazing, blessed, incredibly great week. But what happens if tomorrow your world falls apart? What happens tomorrow if something completely unexpected takes place in your life? What are you going to do? How are you going to deal with that? Run to him. Run to the one when everything falls apart, his arms. Let him hold you.
Today, if you begin your life as a Christ follower, I encourage you to tell somebody. Come up and let me know. We want to walk with you in this journey. On the tables, by the doors, it's a packet. It says for new believers. It's got a Bible. It's material to get you started and walk with Jesus. Please pick one of those up. Let us walk with you. If you need prayer, prayer team will be down front. If you'd like to take communion today, it's on both sides of the room. Do that. But my prayer for you is go walk this week knowing that he's with you. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming.